Well, my name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Wilden Hills Church. Okay, a couple of announcements, then we'll get into it. Ho ho, look at this. Uh, we're having a new age Q&A tomorrow night. That's Paul Eddy, the wizard, and apparently he's got me in a crystal ball. It should be very reversed, but there you go. So we have some wacky people around here. I had no idea they were doing this until this morning, actually. So uh, tomorrow night, I'll be doing a little talk on Eckhart Tolle's book, uh, uh, the, the New Earth, that Oprah is so pushing so heavily, and we'll examine some of the uh, rather troubling aspects of that work. And, and, and Paul will be speaking on this whole New Age movement kind of broadly, and then we'll take questions you have. Uh, anything that has to do with this New Age Eastern mysticism and blah, 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 blah. So come with your questions. Um, and when oh, that starts at 7 o'clock. There's been a whole lot going on in my life this last week. I am the proud grandfather of a new grandbaby. Grandpa number two, look at that. Woo! That's my daughter, Alicia. One hour after giving birth. Can you believe she looks that good? And that is Sage Nicole Gilbert. Uh, one hour into the world. Isn't that just adorable? And there's Sage, and uh, that's my son-in-law, Tim, and that's Alicia. And one of the benefits of being a senior pastor is I get to show this kind of stuff off. So there. So God bless them. All right. I want to hover a little bit longer on the passage that we've really been hovering around for the last three weeks. We're never in a hurry here at Woodland Hills Church. We want to go deep, not necessarily fast. And so we just chew on the word. Uh, we don't put a premium on entertainment value or on having clever new titles or anything of the sort. We just do the word. And uh, so there's this passage that we've been kind of chewing on in different ways for a couple weeks here. Sandra preached on it explicitly two weeks ago. It's Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, about the rich farmer. And I want to entitle this, Being Rich Toward God. Last week, we dealt with a verse that comes right before this, and we talked on practicing the presence of God. How'd it go this week? Okay, now, 20 of you are saying, oh my gosh, I totally forgot about that. We're supposed to remember God's presence at all times. That's okay. Don't condemn yourself. Don't beat yourself up. Don't judge yourself. That won't do anything any good. Uh, just starting right now. The only thing that's real is right now. The only thing that matters is right now. So right now, just become aware of the fact that you are submerged in an ocean of God's love. He's present here. And this changes everything the minute you do that. Uh, and just try to remain aware of that as you're listening to this message. The interesting thing about being aware of God's presence is that it doesn't compete with anything else. Um, it's not like it takes your focus off of anything else. In fact, you'll find that if you can remember that God is present right now as I'm talking and you're listening, you actually are, you get more out of the now. You're more attuned to the present moment. And this is coming from a guy who specializes in not focusing, all right? I, I, I'm Mr. ADD. Uh, I know what it is not to be able to focus. Uh, but I find that when I can remember God's presence, it, it helps me uh, anchor more in the present moment, whether I'm talking to, to folks or talking with individuals or reading or whatever. And so try to remain aware of that. And you'll forget within 18 seconds, but then you come back to it and, and just, oh yeah, God's present here. You might want to praise him for that. Sprinkle in some praises as, as the service is going on. Not like screaming praises, but just like, thank you, Lord, for being present. All right. Luke chapter 12, starting with verse 13, TNIV version. Someone in the crowd said to him, and remember the crowd is very big at this point. There are thousands that have showed up. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? He's saying, do I look like your lawyer? 
No. Then he said to them, the crowd now, including the man, watch out. Here's what I will say. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then to drive home the point, he tells him this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what should I do? I've, I've got no place to store my crops. But then he said, ah, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, I'll build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? Well, it won't be you. This is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves but are not rich toward God. It's like Scott said earlier during the worship set, one thing you can count on in life is that whatever you've got, it, you'll eventually lose it. It will be taken from you. This is how it will be for everyone who stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Pray with me here for a moment. Lord, I ask that you help me to stay present and aware of your presence moment by moment as I'm delivering this message. And I pray, God, you help all of us to be aware of your presence uh, and surrender to your presence as we receive this message. Anoint it, infuse it with your authority, write it into our hearts and minds, and, and, and build your kingdom there, Lord. Help us not just to hear it, but to hear it, to, to be open to it, to re not just receive it, but to deeply receive it and use it to impact our lives and bring your kingdom. For all who are in this auditorium, for all who are listening uh, through iPod, for all who are watching through TV, all of us, Lord God, wherever, at whatever moment they're listening to this, open up their minds and hearts to stay present, to receive it, and to be changed in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Two points I want to make this morning. The first one has to do with this guy who wants Jesus to settle this inheritance dispute. The second one has to do with the rich farmer. The first one is an issue that I speak on with a certain amount of regularity. I try never to be a one-string fiddle, but uh, we do come back to it whenever it's in the text. Um, if you've been around here for a couple of years, the last four years in particular, you've heard me speak along these lines, never quite like I'm going to say it right now. But I'm going to revisit this issue because, and this is the issue, we're approaching an election year and we need to be reminded about a few things. And then I'll talk about the rich uh, farmer. The guy comes to Jesus and he says, you know, Lord, tell my brother to share the inheritance. Now, what he's ticked off about is this. In ancient Judaism, there was a traditional law that the firstborn male, women were cut out of the deal, but the firstborn male got everything. When the father died, it all went to the brother. Um, now, the, the father could alter that a little if he wanted to, but he usually didn't. That was kind of a sacred tradition they had. The firstborn could share the inheritance with others if he wanted to, but if he was ticked off at somebody or just didn't want to, he didn't have to. So this guy is clearly a second or thirdborn male, and he's cut out of the deal, and he's mad. What a stupid law! And it really bites when you've got an older brother who's stingy and who's, we've never gotten along and so and so. So, you know, Jesus, you're, you're, you're the big man in town right now. Would you just weigh in on this issue and do the right thing, do the just thing? Get me my fair share. And Jesus looks at him, and, and, and you can understand why he'd want to do that. If, if he could have got Jesus to weigh in on this, that's a lot of clout. 
You got a lot of leverage. If you can drop Jesus' name on your agenda, you got some authority there. Especially now, Jesus is at the peak of his authority, his popularity. He's going to lose it pretty soon, but right now, he's, he's like, wow, thousands and thousands of people are coming out to hear him and to witness his miracles. So this guy wants to use Jesus' name to give more clout, more bite to his agenda. Jesus says, no way. Do I look like your lawyer? Do I look like a judge? Do I look like a politician? Do you think I came here to do that? No. wrong old. I'm not here to resolve all your, your personal issues or your political issues. I've come to invite you into a kingdom that is not of this world, a kingdom that will set you free. And the place maybe we should start is with greed. Maybe it was just the way this guy said it. Uh, he, he, uh, Jesus picked up on something. He says, so if you want to be in the kingdom, here's something to think about. Be careful to guard against all kinds of greed. However you settle this political and family issue, uh, fine, but be careful to guard your heart, that you're not motivated by greed. Because greed kills. Greed is cancer. And he tells the story of this rich farmer to illustrate the point. If you want to enter the kingdom, don't be worried about being rich uh, with wealth in this life. Rather, be concerned with being rich toward God, because that lasts forever. Now, imagine with me, if you will, that this guy who wants this inheritance issue settled in his favor uh, walks home after this. He's clearly not pleased with the answer Jesus gave him. He's mumbling and grumbling to himself all the way home, calls himself the Messiah when he was It's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair. He walks in the door and sees his older brother there, the firstborn, you know, just rejoicing with all of his inheritance, all of this money. He's not going to share any of it. So the guy gets really mad and he says, Brother, I just got, I was just talking to Jesus just a minute ago. You know the big Messiah guy that everyone's talking about? And he told me to tell you that you're supposed to share that inheritance with me. In fact, we're, we're supposed to together uh, lobby to change this stupid law because it's stupid. It's traditional, but it's stupid. It's not fair. Jesus says so. Now, if word got back to Jesus that this guy did this, what do you think Jesus would think? How would Jesus feel? I think he'd probably be a little peeved. Have you ever had your name used to further someone else's agenda when you didn't give the person permission to use it? Maybe you even expressly forbid the use of your name to further that particular agenda, but they did it anyways. It's rather irritating. It's happened to me several times. Uh, I have to practice unsurpassable worth giving in that moment. Unsurpassable worth, unsurpassable worth, unsurpassable worth, unsurpassable worth. Turn the other cheek. Uh, it's very irritating. Parents, you've had it happen where, you know, you, you tell little Susie one thing and then little Susie goes and tells brother, mom said so and mom didn't say so. Mom said the opposite of that. Uh, we don't like our names being used to further agendas that we don't endorse. Maybe we even explicitly forbid them. That's what this guy did. And it would undoubtedly have ticked Jesus off. Now, let's up the ante a little bit and make this a little more interesting. Suppose... We know that with Jesus' disciples, he had a Matthew who was a tax collector. They were the conservative of the conservatives. And he had a Simon who was a zealot. They were the liberals of the liberal. They were farther apart than Rush Limbaugh and Ted Kennedy can ever dream of being. I mean, they were miles apart. And yet they're both Jesus' disciples. And suppose, just suppose, that Simon being the liberal, he always looks at the individuals who are, who are the underdogs and getting shortchanged, and he can't stand this inheritance law. Uh, it, it's just so unfair for everything to go to one person and not to be divided with everybody. 
And so he is really against this inheritance law. But Matthew is a tax collector. He's conservative. He, he wants to protect the status quo and, and preserve tradition. Uh, societies hang on traditions. And what he sees is this, that this inheritance law, first of all, it was commanded uh, by God. And how dare we ever alter God's command? But on top of that, it's, it's, it's a staple of society. Uh, it, it always reminds us that we trust in God, not in wealth, uh, because God decides who the firstborn is. How dare we uh, start taking authority for ourselves? We are moving society in a godless direction and in a greedy direction if we get rid of this inheritance law. He, 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 he can't stand the fact that there are liberals out there who want to undermine uh, the moral fabric of society by getting rid of this law. Now, as long as Jesus is around, they get along pretty good. They, they, they keep a lid on it, uh, you know, because they just heard Jesus Say, do I look like a lawyer? Do I look like a politician? That's not what I'm here for. So they keep a lid on it. But then Jesus rises from the dead and then later ascends into heaven. And then he says, go out and preach the gospel to all the world. So the Christians go out and preach the gospel to all the world. And they proclaim the good news, liberation of the captives. The kingdom has come. There's a new revolution going on. And and you're, you're, you're invited to join it. Come join the new community, the revolutionary community. They all preach that. But Simon and Matthew have a little bit of a twist. Simon just knows that really Jesus is, is, is for justice and justice requires getting rid of this law. So he goes out and preaches the kingdom and invites people to the kingdom revolution. But part of what that means is that we are going to take a stand against these unjust inheritance laws. Come and join the group that, among other things, takes a stand against that. Matthew, he goes out and he has his own little twist. He preaches the kingdom, invites people into the, to join the revolution, yes. But part of what this revolution will be about is that we're going to fight the liberals who are trying to undermine the moral fabric of society by getting rid of inheritance laws. Simon writes a book, Jesus and the Injustice of Inheritance Laws. And he goes on a speaking circuit and appears on talk shows, and he's hailed as the leader of the, the new progressive Christian left. Matthew gets mad and he writes a book, How Liberals Are Destroying Society by Getting Undermining Inheritance Laws, Jesus and the Fight Against Liberalism. And, and he goes on a speaking circuit and appears on conservative talk shows and he's hailed as a leader of the Christian right. Meanwhile, they both get so caught up, Simon and Matthew both get so caught up in their political fights that they forget that Jesus told them to work together to actually minister to people who suffer injustice. <laughs> They're too busy writing about it and fighting about it. They get so angry at one another, they eventually split, stop talking to one another, form their own parties, their own religious Christian political parties, maybe even new denominations. Meantime, this is all hurting the spread of the kingdom. It's hurting evangelism because all the liberal non-Christians are mad at the the Matthew Jesus because of his politics. All the conservative non-Christians are mad at the Simon Jesus because of their politics. So they don't want anything to do with the kingdom because it's so fused with politics. On both sides. And then there's just a bunch of people who really don't care about that, but they see these Christians fighting, and they, and they ask themselves, why would I want to join that? These people can't even agree with one another. And all the while, we've got to hear Jesus up in heaven, screaming for, to anybody who will hear, do I look like a lawyer? Do I look like uh, a judge? Do I look like a politician? Didn't I tell you that? See, that is, that story is a parable, I believe, of a great deal of modern American evangelicalism. You've got the Matthew conservative Christians on the right telling us that if you really are a true Christian, uh, you will vote this particular way. You'll take a stand against these particular causes that are destroying society, and you'll be one who really wants to protect society and, and preserve America for God, so you'll vote Republican. Those are God's politics. 
But then you have the Simon Christians on the progressive left who are telling us that to be a follower of Jesus means you fight those conservatives who are always holding back good causes. If you really cared about the poor, you'd vote this way. If you really cared about justice, you'd vote this way. If you really were sincere in wanting peace, well, then you'd vote this way. And it's pretty much along the lines of the Democratic Party. This is, quote unquote, God's politics. And as we approach this election, we're going to be hearing more and more of this, I suspect. Uh, now, the good news is that things are a whole lot better than they were four years ago. Last year at this time, uh, pastors like me were being deluged with all sorts of propaganda and steerers flocked to vote in a certain way. And we started getting some of that, of course, but not nearly what it was four years ago. So things have improved a great deal, for which we can all be thankful. Uh, but you'll still hear some of this, obviously. Just last week, we heard some of it uh, with this guy in the pulpit. That, that was amazing. Um, uh, you know, I'll just, I'll just say this, that, uh, oh, be careful, be careful. But, you know, I had a number of people e emailing me saying, I finally agree with you in light of what happened this week. Thank you for keeping politics out of the pulpit. Uh, thank you. I now see that you're right. <laughs> Guys like that make me look really good. I bet, I bet, I bet Obama wishes I was his pastor right, right about now. <laughs> But look, look, see, here's the thing. You're going to be hearing this. You're going to be hearing, oh, if you really are a Christian, you vote this way. You really vote with this person, da, 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 da. And as you hear people Christianizing their political position, using Jesus' name to give more clout to their opinions, as you read that or hear that, please just remember to do one thing. Pause, cup your ear towards heaven and listen very intently, and you will hear Jesus still saying, do I look like a lawyer? Do I look like a judge? Do I look like a politician? Did I ever do anything to encourage anybody to use my name to tell Caesar what to do? And the answer is no. The point, the point is, if you want to have your opinions, have your opinions. We've all got them. But don't try to give your opinions more clout by attaching Jesus' name to it in any way, shape, or form. You want to vote Republican, God bless you, fine, vote Republican, but don't call it the Christian vote. You want to vote Democratic, uh, fine, God bless you, vote Democratic, but don't call it the Christian vote. You want to vote Greenpeace Party, the Libertarian Party, uh, the Socialist Party, the Political Anarchy Party, if they've got a party, I don't know, I don't care, fine, bless you. Uh, but don't call it the Christian vote. You can call it the smart vote, I'm sure you will. The genius vote, the vote that will help the world, fine, wonderful. We all think that about our, 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 our own views. Uh, but don't call, call it anything you want, but don't call it the Christian vote. Because the truth is that there's nothing Christian about it. Um, don't, don't, you may be so passionate about your view that you can't conceive of how any sincere Christian could possibly disagree with you. I got that. We all think that way. <laughs> all the more reason to not attach Jesus' name to your opinion. All the more reason. See, you can only call Christian what looks like Jesus. By definition, that's what the word Christian means, Christ-like. And since Jesus never voted and never even weighed in on any of those issues, you can't call your particular opinion about how we should weigh in those issues or if we should weigh on those issues the Christian way to weigh in those issues. Love the unlovable. That is Christian because Jesus did that. Uh, forgive people really quick. That's Christian because Jesus did that and, and told us to do the same. Love your enemies, turn the other cheek, refuse to engage in violence. That's Christian because Jesus did that. Refuse to ever judge sinners, don't ever look down on anybody. That's Christian. Jesus taught us to do that. 
befriend people that, that society may, may, maybe has walls about you befriending, reach out across racial lines. That's, that's Christian because Jesus did that. Feed the hungry, care about the homeless, visit people in prison, serve drug addicts, give generously to the poor, heal the sick, free people from demonic oppression. That's Christian because Jesus did that. Proclaim the good news to everybody. That's Christian because Jesus did that. That is Christian. That is the kingdom. But what you think Caesar should do and who's going to run what or what policies should be placed, they undoubtedly are right and smart, but it's not Christian. So don't try to give your position more clout by attaching his name to it, and don't pay a whole lot of attention to the folks who do that. Because folks, in the, in the end, here's what we need to hear over and over again, is that the hope of the world doesn't lie in the rightness of your opinions or the rightness of my opinions or the rightness of anyone else's political opinions, the hope of the world. Uh, it, it may be that America will be a little better off and the world will be a little better off depending on who gets into office. And if we have absolutely nothing else to do and we're bored stiff, we can talk about that issue if you want. Um, it may be, but the fundamental structure of the world isn't going to change. Uh, the, the problem with the world is this diabolical oppression and what's going on in the hearts of people. It's a problem that laws aren't going to fix, uh, candidates aren't going to fix, policies aren't going to fix, and the military isn't going to fix. Uh, whatever happens, invade a country, don't invade a country, pass this law, don't pass this law, get this candidate in, don't get this candidate in, whatever happens, the fundamental fallenness of the world will still be there. The hope of the world doesn't lie in tweaking government Cleaning up this or that thing. It may be good, but that's not the hope of the world. The hope of the world, folks, lies in, the, in, in those radical, foolish-looking uh, people who dare to take Jesus seriously, who dare to imitate Jesus, a people who put all of their trust and hope in what God can do using little acts of the kingdom in every area of our life. As the mustard seed kingdom begins to grow and spread, and they trust that when his time is right, he'll come back to earth, and then the world will be transformed. That's the hope of the world. That's the hope of the world. To have your opinions. But don't misuse Jesus' name by Christianizing them. What is it to be a Christian? It's not to be rich in the rightness of your opinions. It's not to be rich with wealth. To, to be Christian, Christ-like, is to be rich toward God. And this brings me to my second point of today's message. What does that mean? It looks like Jesus. He, he, he modeled, he incarnated what it is to be rich towards God. But, but let's explore it a little bit. This farmer had a bumper crop, and so he thought he'd just retire. Makes sense. And yet God says to him, you fool, you fool. Now, pause here for a moment. I went to somewhat liberal seminaries, as some of you might know, and I heard, oh, a half dozen times, this passage used by professors to suggest that Jesus is anti-capitalism. Because this farm was just being a good capitalist, and here Jesus blasts capitalism. So Jesus is pro-socialism, maybe even pro-communism, but anti-capitalism. Of course, that ticked off all the conservative students in the class, who then rise up to say, well, no, and they quote this verse or that verse or whatever, to say, no, Jesus is pro-capitalism, and he's anti-socialism and anti-communism. And here we go again, folks. <laughs> and all the while, you got to pause and cup your ear towards heaven, and you will hear Jesus Screaming to anyone who will listen, do I look like an economist? He didn't come to tell Caesar what was the right economic program uh, for, for government to have. The point of the passage isn't about that. The point of the passage is about how kingdom people, the kind of attitude kingdom people are to have towards God and are, are to have towards others and to have towards money. That's the point of the passage. 
Note also that the problem here with this rich farmer was not that he got rich. I, in my seminary days, heard a couple of messages along those lines as well. Those nasty rich people who got all that stuff and live in those big houses, have those nice cars and nice clothes. They Christianized their class envy. It's very much like the guy who's demanding an inheritance thing. It's not fair that they have so much and we have so little. And so they just sort of demonize everybody with wealth. Well, they use that passage to do it, but that's not the right use of the passage. Jesus doesn't blame the guy for being rich. It wasn't his fault that the land had an abundant crop. It's not his fault. It was a blessing from God. The problem, the problem is that he wasn't also rich toward God. That's the punchline of the parable. So Jesus says, this is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves, but are not rich toward God. Now, what does that mean, to be rich toward God? You might think you know, but it's always good to question what you think you know, because you might discover that there's something you don't know. And you'll never discover that as long as you think you do know. So let's pretend like we don't know. What does it mean to be rich toward God? Here's one way of approaching it. Here's what I, how I want to do, do this morning. The Bible tells us, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, that we're to be imitators of God, mimitai, mimic God. You are godly to the extent that you mimic God. You look like God. You, 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 you have God's character and demeanor. So we're supposed to imitate God. So maybe one way of answering this question, the best way perhaps, is to say, how is God rich toward us? And then let's try to imitate it towards him and towards one another. Does that make sense? So how is God rich toward us? Well, here's the deal. Whether you knew it or not, you were dead in your sin. We don't feel dead in our sin, which is just further evidence that we are dead in our sin. We're so dead, we don't feel our deadness. We're dead in sin, left to our own, apart from the grace of God, we're dead in our sin. We're corpses, we can't save ourselves. We don't wanna save ourselves. In fact, we're perfectly happy being going on without God. We don't want God in our life. That's the state of humanity in, in, under the oppression of the powers and, and in our fallen, rebellious state. We're lost. A stingy God who wasn't rich, a minimal God who, who wasn't rich, well, first of all, wouldn't have created us in the first place because even that's a matter of sharing stuff. Uh, but if he did create us, then when we rebelled of our, own, of our own free will, this God would have said, yeah, too much trouble and been done with us. And in one sense, he would have been justified doing that. But the true God didn't do that. The true God ga graciously gave us his, 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 his will in the law. Uh, and if he would have ended there, that would have been gracious, but he went beyond that. This God not only gave us his law, but throughout history, he went through a long process of laying down, patiently laying down a framework uh, to, to, to rescue us. And that would have been gracious if he would have stopped there, but he didn't. Uh, this God then sent prophets and sometimes sent angels and gave dreams and visions to gradually reveal himself to us. Uh, that was gracious. If he would have stopped there, he would have been a non-stingy God, a gracious God, but he didn't stop there. The New Testament tells us that God, while we were yet sinners, he gave himself to us. He gave the most precious gift, the richest gift he could possibly give us. He poured himself completely out in becoming a human being. He set aside all of his divine prerogatives, his privileges, in order to become a human being. But not only did he become a human being, he became a human being who went to Calvary. And on Calvary, the Bible tells us, he entered into our hell. He took upon himself the consequences of, of, of the sin of the world. God made him who knew no sin, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God went to the opposite of himself. The all-holy God dove into sin, what was antithetical to himself, to save us, to rescue us. 
God couldn't have possibly have gone to a further extreme to save us than what he actually did. He gave us the most priceless, precious, rich, opulent gift he could ever give us by giving us himself and by willing to go into this torture chamber on our behalf. It is as rich as it gets. But this God doesn't stop there. He not only gives himself to us in Christ, the Bible says he gives himself to us in giving us the Holy Spirit. When we open up our heart, the Holy Spirit comes, rushes in, uh, abhors a vacuum. And the minute we create a vacuum in our heart, the Holy Spirit rushes in. God himself says basically this. I know you humans are so oppressed by the devil and so in bondage to sin that even with Jesus Christ as a a motivation, you're not going to be able to live for me. So I'll tell you what, I'll come and live in you and I'll help you from the inside out. And so he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the gift of himself a second time. And in giving himself to us as the Holy Spirit, he gives us the, the opulent, splendid, lavishing gift of his wisdom and of his presence of his, and of his transforming power and of his love on the inside so that we can walk around knowing moment by moment that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that God lives in us. It's no longer we that lives, but Christ who lives within us. He doesn't just come and die for us. He now in his spirit takes up residency within us, a priceless, unsurpassable gift. God is infinitely rich, but he doesn't stop there. You read Ephesians 1, and there's a whole lot of extras thrown in on this stuff. In Ephesians 1, for example, it says that he blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Every. Everyone say every. every. There wasn't a blessing he held back. He not only gave us himself, he gave us all of heaven, all the riches, everything he had to give, he gave it to us. He rescued us from the devil, put us in heavenly places, seated with Christ Jesus, far above principalities and powers, and then he looks at the whole mansion of heaven and says, hey, kids, it's all yours. We have an infinitely rich inheritance in Christ Jesus. It couldn't be better than it is. It's magnificent. It's opulent. It's, it's, it's extravagant. He lavishes, as Paul says, he lavishes his love on us. We who could deserve it couldn't deserve it less. He pours himself out and pours all of heaven out on our behalf. God is infinitely rich. He doesn't do the minimum. He doesn't do just get by. Salvation is not a minimal rescue mission where God does the least amount possible just to keep us out of hell. Now, when God saves us, he super saves us. He's a maximal God, not a minimal God. He always goes all the way. He's a passionate God. He never does things in a mediocre way. He gives everything he's got to give for people who could not deserve it less. And then... And here's the kingdom invitation. God says, opens, extends his hand to us and says, with me helping you on the inside, will you reciprocate? Will you dance with me? Will you, will you model, mirror, the way I am towards you, will you be that towards me? The richness I poured out in love towards you, will you reciprocate that to me? When we are rich towards God, we look like Jesus. To the extent that we're rich towards God, we look like Jesus. To the extent that we don't, we look like the farmer. What we need to understand is that God is after. When this kingdom stuff here, this isn't about escaping hell. What God is after is a lavish, spectacular love affair. What God is after is the greatest love affair ever told. In fact, what God is after in his relationship with us is the greatest love affair that ever could be told. You couldn't get a love story that's more beautiful and magnificent and rich than the love story that's being written with our lives, where where we are the main character, uh, the ones who are invited into the dance with God. What God is after is not just an okay bride. She's okay. You know, what God is after is a drop-dead gorgeous bride, a radiant bride, a bride that ravishes his heart, 
you know, that, that, that just, that it, a bride that reflects his own character and beauty and passion and love. Because what God is after is not just an okay marriage, a minimal marriage. Sometimes we might settle for that, but God doesn't. What God wants is a marriage that is full of his love, is full of his passion, that's full of creativity and excitement, that never gets boring. A, a marriage, the love of which blows the socks off or the, the wings off of the angels. They're going, whoa, check out that love affair. Greatest love story ever told. What God is after is to have us enter into a passionate, ecstatic dance where we share in the perfect love and joy of the triune God. A dance that begins now where we embrace God the way he embraces us. Where we lavish, we lavishly live for him the way he lavishly lives for us. Where, where, we, where there's no reservation, there's no minimal thinking, there's no just get by thinking. There's no average mediocre thinking, but rather a love affair. It can't be beautiful unless both parties are doing this. A love affair in which, which we are gripped by and captivated by his beauty and his passion, and we're pouring ourselves out completely to him. A love affair, a dance that is opulent, extravagant, magnificent, that is rich. A love affair between us and God that reflects the unsurpassable ecstatic joy and love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout all eternity. That's what God is after, a mirror of himself and his relationship with us. It could not be more beautiful. It could not be more rich. It could not be more spectacular. Do you, seeing that that is the goal, do you now really appreciate why it is so grotesquely insulting to Jesus to use his name and his credibility to further our own agendas? Do you see how insulting it is to make him sort of our pet lawyer, our pet politician, our pet judge, who always happens to agree with us and gives our opinions more credibility? Do you see how insulting it is to make him the poster child of this political program or that political program or this nation or that nation? You're shooting infinitely too low if you reduce Jesus to that. That's why Jesus says, do I look like a lawyer? Do I look like a judge? Do I look like a politician? I've come to do something far more radical and transforming and beautiful than that. And do you see why this farmer was such a fool? This farmer was invited into an eternal, passionate, joy-filled dance with God that would never end, to be rich towards God, but instead he chose to be rich toward himself and it didn't even last a day. The farmer lived in a story. We all live in a story. It's a narrative in our head that, that kind of determines what we feel and think and live and what our values are and things like that. We live in a story. What makes sense of this world? He, the farmer lived in a story that was very close to the American story, very close to the story that Sandra preached on two weeks ago, the story of stuff. It's a story where the point of everything is to accumulate, to be as comfortable as possible, as have as much convenience as possible, you know, to have as much status as possible, have, have as much security as possible. It's a story of the here and now. It's a story that's completely uh, orientated on ourselves, here and now. And we may theoretically believe that there's life after death and so-and-so. I'm sure that farmer thought that. But we never act on it because the story we live on, that we really live in, is the story of us and the story of stuff and the story of here and the story of now. God is calling us to live in a very different story. It's a story of opulent, lavish, spectacular, magnificent, non-compromising love. It's a story of him pouring himself out for us without remainder, holding nothing back, and inviting us to pour everything, out, uh, everything we are out to him 
holding nothing back, without remainder. He holds out his hand and says, will you dance, starting now? A dance that will go on throughout eternity. And will you make true what you sang about earlier, the Lord is saying to us, that the world holds nothing for us? We sang that. Is that true? Because the Lord is saying, for you to pour out towards me means you can't be trying to always get it for yourself and store it up for yourself. Will you die to the silly, meaningless, petty stuff that the world offers you and die to the story that it's all about collecting that stuff? And will you live in my story, which will go on forever and ever and is magnificent and grand and opulent and rich and beautiful and lovely? God has done everything possible. He could not, there's nothing he could have given us that he didn't give us. That's what being rich toward us is. What it means to be rich towards God is that we reciprocate and we pour out ourselves to him. So the question I wanted to leave us with is this. Are we being rich toward God? Now, to answer that question, don't ask yourself, what do you believe? Uh, you probably already believe that you should be rich toward God. And maybe you really believe you are. But see, we have a tremendous capacity to believe one thing and live differently. Have you noticed that? Beliefs don't have necessarily have anything to do with reality. So to, to ask yourself the question honestly, don't ask, what do I believe? Ask, how am I living? How am I living? See, this rich farmer, if he was wise instead of foolish, what he would have done is he would have thanked God for the crop. That's a blessing from God. Wow, check it out, I'm rich. Wonderful. But he immediately would have said, God, how do you want me to dance? Uh, God, uh, I, I want to bring this, these, these riches into our extravagant dance. Let's dance with this. I got all this money now. Let's dance with it. And, and he would have offered it up. God, you poured yourself up to me. I want to pour myself out, 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 out to you. And, uh, and now it includes this crap. And so, God, how would you have me dance extravagantly with this? And God probably would have said something like, I don't know, but he might have said something like, um, well, you know, I'll tell you what, you do need a new barn. That one's getting kind of old. So enjoy the barn. Get a new barn. Enjoy that. I want, I, I want to bless you. Keep some of that. But the real joy will happen. And we read about this in a couple chapters later in Luke 14, which we'll get to in 2011. Um, <laughs> but he says this. Because I can imagine God saying this. Can I tell you what? Let's take all that money, you know, sell the crop and let's get all the money and let's go down to Galilee, the poor part of town, and I want to throw a party like they've never seen and I want to invite people who never get invited to parties. We're going to have great wine, we're going to have great food, we're going to have great dancing to people who never get a chance to party, never get a chance to dance and hardly ever get to eat food. And let's just have this opulent party. It'll be magnificent. And when we're done with them, we'll go to the poor part of Jerusalem and then we'll take it to Nazareth. We'll have a road show here just extravagantly lavishing blessing on other people. And see, that would have given this farmer far more joy than he'd ever get by trying to eat, drink, and be merry the rest of his life. And that joy, unlike the barn joy, would have lasted more than a day. It would have lasted all eternity. God is inviting us to be wise, to put all of our treasure in our dance with him, to let go of everything else. He'll guide us on how to live and how to use our stuff. Yeah, he'll guide us. But it will all be part of the dance. So are we dancing? Are we dancing? Uh, close your eyes for a moment and uh, if that helps you because I want to ask the Holy Spirit to now apply this message to our life allow the Holy Spirit to show you one thing maybe more but at least one thing this week that you can do to dance more passionately with God 
maybe one thing that you're not presently offering up to him that he wants to include in the dance. Maybe you won the lottery last night. You just had a bumper crop. And God is saying, can we dance with that? Someone just got mad that I mentioned the lottery. I'm sorry. <laughs> shouldn't, have, shouldn't have done that. Every time I mention the lottery, people get mad at me. Sorry, okay. Focus. Stay present. Uh, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Help us to yield up our life. Help us to surrender without remainder everything to you that we reflect you in how we relate to you. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, which is a gift inside of us, who alone makes any of this possible. <laughs> Thank you, Holy Spirit. And now open up our heart, open up our grip on things to dance, to enter into the fullness of joy and the fullness of power and peace that comes from the kingdom. God, free any who are here who are inclined to do the minimalistic program, the just get by program. The, I'll just take the fire insurance program. God, expose to them the deception involved in that kind of thinking. That you are a maximal God, not a minimal God. And invite us totally and fully and passionately into this dance. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. I'd like to invite the prayer teams up. And if you would like to stay and pray about anything, I encourage you to come forward. Uh, don't leave with whatever burden you have. You can kneel here or just talk to these folks. Uh, don't forget to uh, sign up to go out to eat with people. Uh, get to meet people. Don't forget to dance this Friday night. Don't forget to dance out in the gathering area. Dance with God. Go out and build a kingdom. Go and dance. Have fun. I got to quit talking. Bye. On last road, we are poor.